that, that we get to start a new series today. We're going to be talking about peacemaking, um, which is something that I'm very passionate about. That's why they gave me the title of Pastor of Peacemaking and Justice. Um, and if you guys have been with us for a while, you might remember that last summer around the same time, um, we also did a peacemaking series. And the reason why we want to circle back around to that and kind of make that a normal rhythm is because it's a high value in our church. Um, we believe that, that peacemaking is central to the biblical narrative and the gospel. Um, we believe that Jesus came as the ultimate peacemaker. And so for us, as followers of Jesus, we are called to step into peacemaking as well. And so this, this um, series, it's, it's not just going to be a repeat of the last one. So if you weren't here for the last one, I encourage you to go back um, and listen to that. Um, this is, we're going to kind of come at it from a different angle this time. Um, but this, this series fits in really well with the series that we just finished, too. We just talked about what is the church. And now we're going to be talking about what does God call the church to? What is our role and purpose in the world? And as we heard in the last series, um, Matt had shared some of the responses from some, some of his friends, people that he talked to, people that were outside the church, when he asked them, well, what do you think of the church? How do you view the church? Um, and a lot of those responses were, were filled with a lot of pain, um, harm, and trauma that had actually been caused by the church, specifically around areas of like racism, LGBTQ community, uh, the pandemic, politics. And so we see that, that the view, the perception that the world often has of the church is not what we see in Jesus. And, you know, as, as we saw some of some of those things kind of play out over the last year. I feel like there were many times that I just kind of came to this place of um, just being overwhelmed with emotion, of um, just sadness for for some of the things, some of those things that that I see in the church. Um, because I love I love the church. I'm, I'm I'm a part of the church. I'm a part of it. Um, but there's this burden for wanting the church to to represent Jesus well to the world. And in some of those moments when I was grieving, I really connected with this picture of Jesus in Luke 19, where he is entering Jerusalem on his way to the crucifixion, and he begins to weep over the city. And it says in Luke 19, 41 to 44, but as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late, and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. So the Jewish people here living in Jerusalem, they should have been the first to understand this way of peace that Jesus set out. They were the ones that God had called. He had been present with them. He had given them the law and the prophets all along, trying to show them who he was and wanting them to represent him. And yet when God came in human form in Jesus, they didn't recognize him. Instead, they often sought to achieve the world's version of peace through power, exclusion, and violence. And so God handed them over to what they had chosen, knowing that it was this path that would lead their own destruction. What we see in Jesus, even, even right before this moment where he's weeping over Jerusalem, he's just he's been approaching the city, riding on a colt. There are, are people on all sides of the road throwing down their coats. They're waving palm branches. 
And this, this triumphal entry of Jesus would have reminded them of, of other triumphal entries of their time. It would have reminded them of the kings that rode in and, and these parades that they had, riding in on their stallions with their military after, after defeating another army. It would have reminded them even of, of other Jewish leaders who had done similar things, such as Judas Maccabeus, who, after he defeated foreign invaders, um, who were coming trying to impose their religion on Jerusalem, he entered into the city and, and his followers were waving palm branches. And so as Jesus rode into the city, he was coming to establish his kingdom, to rescue his people, but he wasn't going to do it in the way that it had been done before. It wasn't going to be through force and violence. He came instead in peace and humility, even riding on a colt to show his humility. And so Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was a symbol of, of the ways that he was standing against the way of the world, the way that the world sought peace, and also the ways that, the, that religion had been influenced by the way of the world. And Jesus tells us in John 14, 27, that the peace that he gives is not like the peace that the world gives. So in order for us to understand this idea of peace that Jesus is talking about, the peace that he wants to give to his followers, we can look to the word shalom, which is the Hebrew word for peace in the Bible. And then later in Greek, it's translated into irene. And this idea of peace is not so much about the absence of tension or conflict. It is the idea of wholeness, being complete, where there is nothing lacking. The Bible Project says true peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. There's this recognition that we, that we live in a world that's broken. It doesn't look like the original goodness that we see in the creation story. But, but our role as peacemakers is, is to join in the restoration to bring us back to that vision of peace that we saw in the beginning, which was, was people living in abundance with God, people living and loving in mutual relationship with one another. So shalom is really another way of thinking about the kingdom of God, where what God has intended is taking place. Oshita Moore says, shalom is the breath, depth, climate, and smell of the kingdom of God. It's a counter story with nothing missing and nothing lost for everyone who reads it. And so we have to ask, what, how do we join in with this shalom? How do we journey into that, step into it? Thankfully, Jesus' final words to his disciple, disciples kind of paved the path for this. He shows us the way. Even though he had, he had said that for those who had chosen the way of the world, the way of peace was hidden to them, he wants that those who are choosing to follow him would know the way of peace. And so throughout these next few weeks, we're going to be going through John 14, 16, which is Jesus's final conversation with his disciples before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And throughout these chapters, um, Jesus is paving the path for them. He is showing them the way of peace. And as, as we'll see, even those who are closest to him often didn't really understand what he was getting at because they had no frame of reference for Jesus's way of peace. It was not what anyone was expecting. 
We're going to take a look at it starting in John 14. We'll be going through verses 1 through 14 today. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So this, this final conversation of, of Jesus with his disciples, um, you know, it starts out with, with a statement that might be familiar to you in, in John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And this is a statement that has been controversial at times, um, but I think it's also one that, that has often been misunderstood. Um, it's not just about Jesus is the way to get our ticket to heaven, as we might sometimes think about it. It is a bold claim that Jesus is making here, but it's not necessarily the one that we've been taught that he's making. So when we look at it in context, we see that all throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus is making these I am statements. He says things like, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the vine, I am the resurrection. And the people who were hearing this would have understood that this was Jesus basically saying that he is God. He's declaring his unity with God. They would have called to mind the story in Exodus 3, where, where Moses meets with God through the burning bush. And at the time, God is telling Moses that he wants him to go to Pharaoh and plead for his people to be released from slavery. And Moses says, when I go back to the people of Israel, what am I supposed to tell them? Who am I supposed to tell them sent me? What is the name that I can give to them? And God says, I am who I am. Tell them that I am sent you. And so this was the name that the people of Israel knew God by. And so when Jesus is making all these I am statements, it was this clear declaration that he is God. And for that, there were many Jewish people, especially the Jewish leaders, that wanted to kill him for that. So when Jesus says here that I am the way and the truth and the life, he's making a bold statement and saying that he is God. And in so doing, he's also saying, if you want to follow God, follow me. If you want to know truth, know me. If you want to enter into eternal life, starting now, live as I have lived. 
I think part of, of what gets confusing in this verse to us sometimes is, is the way that we've often been taught to think about heaven. You know, we often think of heaven as this faraway place that we're going to go when we die, where the streets are paved with gold. And although the Bible alludes to this future hope of, of a completely renewed and restored creation that we get to participate in at some time in the unknown future, a lot of times in the Bible, and the understanding that the people at the time would have had of heaven was something different. It was this idea of where the kingdom of God meets earth. It was really this picture of shalom, where people experienced and lived in shalom. N.T. Wright says, entering the kingdom of heaven does not mean going to heaven after death, but belonging in the present to the people who steer their earthly course by the standards and purposes of heaven and who are assured membership in the age to come. And he says, at another point, that the age to come starts with Jesus's death and resurrection. And if we look at the context here in this verse, we might, we might see a little bit more of this picture of heaven. In verses two and three, it said, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And the word that's used here that's translated as rooms is the Greek word mane, which means abiding places. And we see this theme of abiding all throughout this discourse of Jesus. We see this word again in verse 23, where he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So it's not so much this idea of us being taken someplace else, but it's God coming to make his home with us, us making our home in him. The same root word um, is used all throughout John 15, where Jesus says over and over again, abide in me, remain in me. It's something that Jesus is inviting us into in the here and now. He's inviting us to abide with him and his father through the spirit not just at some point in the distant future. But when we take John 14, 6 out of context and we make it our battle cry and we make it just about this statement of who's getting into heaven and who is not, we do so at the detriment of the world and the gospel. In John 12, Jesus said that he did not come into the world to judge it, but to save it. And yet how often do we set ourselves up as the judges of the world? Jesus humbled himself, but we put ourselves in this high place and look down on others and condemn the world. But that's not our place, and it shouldn't be our focus, and it's not the focus of this verse here. Theologian Gerard Sloyan says, Johannine thought is not a shouting match. Neither is it a denial of all that most people on earth hold dear as their way to God or simply their way. John is calling Christians to go to the Father through Jesus, and to bring a knowledge of Jesus to any who are disposed to hear of him. And Jesus does not say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, so that we can make it into a bumper sticker and have debates about who's going to heaven and who's not. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, meaning follow me, do as I do, receive my love, and love your neighbor as I have loved you. Humble yourself, lay down your life for others. This is what leads to true peace. This is what brings restoration. This is where the kingdom of God meets earth, 
And this is what it means to receive eternal life and to live in this new way. It's a bold claim, but it's not one that we're supposed to shout at others. It's one that we're actually supposed to embody. And he writes it this way. Though of course it's true that many Christians and churches have been arrogant in the way they have presented the gospel, the whole setting of this passage shows that such arrogance is a denial of the very truth it's claiming to present. The truth, the life, through which we know and find the way is Jesus himself. The Jesus who washed the disciples' feet and told them to copy his example. The Jesus who was on his way to give his life as the shepherd for the sheep. Was that arrogant? Was that self-serving? Only when the church recovers the nerve to follow Jesus in his own mission and vocation, I suspect will it be able to recover its nerve fully in making the claim of verse 6. Unless it does so, it loses also the vision of the Father, which this whole passage sets out before us. Don't come with a set fixed idea of who God is and try to fit Jesus into that. Look at Jesus, the Jesus who wept at the tomb of his friend, the Jesus who washed his followers' feet, and you'll see who is the true God. That was Jesus' answer to Philip. It is his answer to the natural questions that arise in people's minds today. Only when his followers are themselves continuing to do what Jesus did, may they be believed when they speak the earth-shattering truth that he spoke. So to follow in the way of Jesus is to actually walk in the way of peace. The way of Jesus is the way of peace. So to, to understand what this way of peace entails, we're going to see throughout the next few chapters, over the next few weeks, um, what Jesus means by that. And peacemaking is not a step-by-step -step process, but Jesus paves this path, and he gives us some guideposts that can help us along the way. And so we're going to get into more detail about some of these guideposts over the next few weeks, but, but before we finish up here today, I want to give kind of an overview of where we're headed. So the first guidepost on the way to peace is union with God. Peacemaking must be rooted in our union with God. This is what keeps us aligned with Christ's way of peace rather than pursuing the world's version of peace. And all throughout John 14 through 16, we see Jesus emphasizing the importance of union with God. He talks about his own union with the Father and the Spirit, and he also invites us in to that union as well. I'm going to read through, and go through it quickly, but just read like a few of the examples from this throughout the next few chapters. In 14.10, he says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. 14.16-17, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. 1426, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. 154, abide in me and I in you. 1515, all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. 167, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. 16.15, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Over and over again, we see Jesus making these statements. That he is one with the Father and the Spirit. And that by some beautiful mystery, we're, we're invited into community with, with God, with the Trinity. And it is this union 
with God that is both the end goal, the heaven that we're seeking, and it's also the means to the end. It is in God's presence where we experience healing and restoration. And our peacemaking within our relationships and in the world must flow from the peacemaking that God is doing inside of us. As we experience this restoration within, the Spirit will guide us into how we can participate in peacemaking externally. This brings us to guidepost number two, which is love for others. Our union with God will always lead us to love others. In 1 John 4, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God, because God is love. To know God, to be with Jesus, to have the Holy Spirit in us, is to love others because God is love. When we believe in Christ, we'll know the Father, we'll experience the gift of the Holy Spirit living in us, and that will move us to do the work of God, the works that we saw Jesus doing, which are always rooted in love. And guidepost number three is humility, because love for others requires humility. And T. Wright says, love is all about the other person. It overflows into service, not in order to show off how hardworking it is, but because that is its natural form. Love ultimately is a laying down of your life for the interests of others, just as Jesus is about to demonstrate to the disciples and the world. Love does not grasp for power or status. and It does not force its way. I think that Philippians 2, verses 1 through 8, sums up this humility and this way of peace so well. I want to read that for us. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full of accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So when we look around today, does it seem like the church at large is actually following the way of Jesus, following this way of peace. You know, it's easy to, to point fingers, but we each have to ask ourselves that question. Am I following the way of Jesus? Am I living as he lived? Am I pursuing union with God, loving others, and humbling myself in order to walk the way of peace like he did? And it's not a one-time decision. Every day, all throughout the day, we have these opportunities, these choices to make if we're going to follow the way of peace or pursue our own version of peace, which will ultimately lead to destruction for ourselves and others. To follow Jesus is to follow the way of peace. It is to be a peacemaker in the midst of a broken world. It is to participate in the restoration that God is doing in the world. And it is to pursue the original goodness that God, through Christ, created in the very beginning. Can you guys pray with me?
God, we are, we are so grateful um, for your presence. We are grateful um, that, that we can know you um, through, through this picture that was painted in Jesus, through the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And God, we pray that as we come to know you more, that you would lead us in this way of peace, that you would lead us to, um, to experience your healing and restoration in ourselves, that you would lead us to love others, that you would lead us to humble ourselves in the way that you have, God. We are grateful for your love, and we pray that your love would move us to be peacemakers in this world. Um, so there's a little bit of a change we'll, have, we'll start having starting this Sunday. Uh, for the end of our communion time, we'll be ending, uh, instead of our prayer that we usually do, we'll be ending our time in the Lord's Prayer. And um, so the communion, both the communion and the Lord's Prayer is something that's um, it's pretty crazy to think about because every believer, every follower of Jesus, since Jesus have practiced this, these two things, praying the Lord's Prayer and doing the communion. And so we get to wrap our time up today as, you know, doing the local, as doing the local expression of the church, doing what we do here, and then we join kind of the collective, not just big capital C, I mean, this is like all cap C-H, you know, U-R-C-H church, that from church from all time, we, we get to do this together. Um, but one thing um, that I'm reminded of as we do the Lord's Prayer later today um, is that the Lord's Prayer is a peacemaking prayer. And the, the way, because it talks about forgiveness, it talks about heaven, right? Like God's, um, your will be done on earth as heaven and on earth. By the way, the, the Lord's Prayer, by the way, has nothing about, you know, help us to stay away from hell. It's let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it talks about that. So it's like it's, it's a worldview prayer, um, but also it talks about forgiveness and the importance of forgiveness. Um, and it mentions that, that we forgive others as, and help us to forgive as we forgive others. And the Matthew passage is really interesting because it all, almost like Matthew, after he shares the Lord's Prayer, he goes off and like on a lot of rant about forgiveness. Like, hey, forgiveness is super important, by the way. Like, if you want forgiveness, you got to forgive other, If you want God to forgive you, you got to forgive other people. And so he makes a point of like, hey, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, the byproduct of the Lord's Prayer should be peacemaking, should be forgiveness. It should result in a heart change. And so as we partake in the elements today, can we remind ourselves that we are invited into a spiritual practice of changed hearts, allowing the Spirit to change us to humble ourselves, to be more and more and shaped and molded into the likeness of Christ. Because even this, right, even the symbolic of like, hey, we're partaking in the body of Christ. And we're partaking in the cup of Christ. Like, that is a symbolic gesture that we get to enter into. Like, because Jesus made peace for us and he just demonstrated what peacemaking looks like for us. So all of this, we're doing this so that we could be more and more shaped into the likeness of Christ. So with that, let's get our um, elements ready.